Well, growing up, I, I had an uncle, and maybe you had one like this also. Everybody's got a crazy uncle, right? Half the stories he told us as kids about his encounter with Bigfoot while he was camping in the mountains of California, okay? Or he told us about the secret caves that were lining the rivers that we used to canoe down and raft down. And he said those caves were used by the Chinese during the 1800s, and they hid and they dug these caves deep and they hid gold and silver in them, but they've closed a lot of them up, and yet if you look real hard, you can find them. And so we as kids thought, oh my gosh, we're gonna get rich as we're canoeing down the river and we're gonna find these things and we're gonna, we're gonna make some big bucks, right? All these little stories, as, as well as him showing us divining rods and saying that you can find water each and every time you use that divining rod, and, and he tried to get us to use them and learn how to use them. What I learned is that though his stories were fun and they were entertaining, they were tall tales. Half of, uh, of these stories contained some truth along with a, a, along with a lot of half-truths and, and things that really just were complete falsehoods. And, the, and many times the half-truths were thrown in just to make the story better. So as we got older and we became teenagers, what we learned is when our uncle began to tell us stories, we became skeptical about the truth of what he was presenting. It was fun. We'd hear him out. But we listened more to be persuaded than we listened to believe. Do you get the difference? We listened more to be persuaded because we, we, you know, we were skeptical. We weren't going to search for it. He's really going to have to prove it to us, right, that this was true. And we weren't going to believe it until we saw it. And we listened more that way than we listened to believe and to discover whether what he was telling us was true. And that was in part because of our history and our contact with him. Well, in the opening 15 verses of Acts chapter 17, we have the tale of really two synagogues, kind of the tale of two cities. And, and in this tale, it tells us how they perceived the message of truth. Each city perceived truth differently. But it also showed us how, it shows us also how they received truth. And they received it differently. Acts chapter 17, it's going to challenge us to ask questions about our own willingness and our own eagerness to know the truth. And these are important questions when it comes to Easter. How eager are you and how willing are you to know the truth? Not just truth in general, but specifically the truth about God, the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. How willing, how open, how eager are you to know the truth? So when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the words of Jesus and his apostles, when it even comes to the words that I'm going to share with you in this message that I'm bringing you today, are you listening to be persuaded? Am I having to work to persuade you? Or are you listening and seeking to believe? Looking for reasons to believe. So I want to read with you about these two cities and these two groups of people who received truth in two different ways and perceived truth in two different ways. And you're going to notice something, that one way is better than the other and it leads to greater blessing. Now God can work with either way, 
God cared about both people groups. He sent Paul, his apostle, with the good news to both of these people groups. And it's a sign then that God loves them and he desires to save them. But one group was listening to perceive and, and be persuaded, and the other one was listening to believe. So if you've got a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to read verses. We're going to start with verses 1 through 4. Now remember, the apostle Paul is traveling on his second missionary journey, and he's traveling with Silas, and he's gone through places he hasn't gone before. And so here, we see him come to the town of Thessalonica. And I want you to read what happened there. When Paul and his companions had passed through Aphmorpheus in Apollyana, and that's close, right? They, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you why I can't pronounce these words, but I, I'll, I'll tell you later. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. It's basically a place where they read the word of God and where they gathered as believers. Um, it was like a modern-day church in some ways. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few of the prominent women. Because see, Paul was really there more than just those three Sabbath days. He was, after he spent that time with the Jews, he began to spend time with the Gentiles and the Greeks that were out, sharing the gospel with them as well. And people believed. But the Jews, some were persuaded, and a few believed. I want you to go back to verses 2 through 3. It said this again in verses 2 through 3. In Thessalonica, he, Paul, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And then verse 4, and some of them were persuaded. There was a need for them to be reasoned with. They had to be persuaded. You know, it's kind of cool that God uses different forms of preaching and teaching and coming to people. And with these folks, Paul had to come and he had to reason with them. That means that, that Paul would present a truth and then he would take scripture and put it alongside that truth and say, this proves it. This is, this is the foundation for what I'm saying to you. And then they'd have question and answers and they'd talk about it. And they'd struggle with it. And they'd debate about it. And with some folks, you have to have that kind of a relationship as you share truth, right? Because they have to be persuaded. These folks held on to tradition. We have different people out there. We have some folks. Are you a traditionalist? Raise your hand if you feel yourself as a traditionalist. I, I see some people here. Who considers themselves a high truth person? And they like truth. Typically, traditionalists are folks that feel like, hey, I pretty much have learned what I need to learn, whether it be in life or in, in spirituality or in the church. I pretty much know how things operate. I know what I believe. I'm going to hold on to that. Not going to change. Not going to budge. I already know it. Tradition. 
is what matters because I've locked in. But truth folks, on the other hand, are more flexible. If you want truth, that means you have a growth mindset. That means you want to keep growing into greater truth. You want to discover truth even if it's truth that you have not previously known or accepted. You're open because you want to grow. And you know that growth is the key to life. And God wants us to grow. But some of us are more traditional and traditionalist. We're stuck in our tradition and the way we see things are the way we're going to see things till our dying day. That's how we feel. Hmm. I'm here to tell you something. Paul would want to debate with you. He'd want to have a back and forth with you. He'd want to have a discussion. Because all teachers and preachers and professors want their students to grow and to grasp new concepts and to grasp them in a deeper way. Amen? Amen. So the books of the Old Testament, they contain many passages about the Messiah. But these Jews had only looked at certain other passages and they didn't recognize the whole teaching of the Messiah. All the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ were there in Scripture. For instance, the crucifixion of Jesus was foretold in Psalm 22. It really talks about that crucifixion. It describes it almost in detail, and it was done a thousand years. It was written a thousand years before Christ was born. It was written long before the method of crucifixion was used. How did King David know to pen those words? He penned them through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God himself to talk about this Messiah that would one day come. So throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the Messianic prophecies were made hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus was born. So from Genesis to Malachi, you know that uh, experts have claimed that there are over 300 specific prophecies detailing the coming of the Messiah, showing that he will come and what he's like. In addition to these prophecies, these prophecies include things that fit Jesus Christ. For instance, you can write some of these down if you want to. They detail his virgin birth. They detail that he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, that he was supposed to be born of the tribe of Judah, that his lineage would be in the line of King David, that he would live a sinless life, and that his atoning work would be for the sins of his people, that his death and resurrection as Messiah was also well documented in these scriptures. And they fit the Lord Jesus. So I want you to go back with me to the best-known Old Testament prophecies concerning the death of the Messiah. I want you to go back with me to Psalm 22, to Isaiah 53. And I, want, and, I, and I hope you'll read them. We don't have time today in the message to read them, but I hope you'll read them. Psalm 22 is especially amazing, as I've said before, because it predicts a number of elements that were included in Jesus' crucifixion thousand, a thousand years before he was crucified. I want you to look at these examples. Here's just three of them. The Messiah will have his hands and his feet pierced through. Psalm 22, 16 tells us that. But we also know that John 20 tells us that that's what happened to him. 
the Messiah. Number two, the Messiah's bones will not be broken. You know, if you've been in other Easter services and heard other Easter messages, that it was common for Roman, Roman soldiers to break the legs of people who were crucified to speed up their death. And he, his, his legs or his bones were not broken because he expired before they needed to do that. You find that in Psalm 22, verse 17. It says that none of his bones were broken. And John 19, 33 tells us that that was really actually the case. And then three, men will cast lots for the Messiah's clothing. Verse 18 of Psalm 22 tells us that they would do that. And Matthew 27, 35 tells us that that is indeed what they did do. They cast lots for his clothing. Think about that. It's eerie how exact the descriptions were. Written a thousand years before he was born. Written before they ever were employing crucifixion as a matter of executing criminals. And yet it was written. And then there is Isaiah 53, and that's one of our classic uh, passages of prophecy, and it's known as the suffering servant prophecies. And it details the death of the Messiah for the sins of God's people, and it was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And Isaiah gives these details about the life and the death of the Messiah. See how they fit Jesus. The Messiah was re will be rejected, it said, 53.3. And we know that Christ was rejected in Luke 13. The Messiah will be killed as a sacrifice in place uh, for the sins of his people. We know that in Isaiah 53, 5-9 it says that, and it says that also in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Messiah, then three, will be silent in front of his accusers. You know in the gospel he was silent. And Isaiah 53, 7 tells us he would be silent. The Messiah will be buried with the rich. You know from Matthew 27 that it was Joseph from Arimathea who took Jesus' body down and put it in his tomb. And he was a rich man, the scripture says. And then finally, in Isaiah 53, 12, the Messiah will be with criminals in his death. And Jesus was crucified between two criminals. We know that from Mark 15. So in addition to the death of the Jewish Messiah, it tells us in Psalm 16:10 of his resurrection. And it foretold his resurrection in another Psalm of David. It says this in Psalm 16:10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which was the underworld, or death, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And people of his time believed that this was, in, was speaking about the Messiah that would come. And we know that he rose from the dead on the third day. That's what Scripture tells us. So when you look at these circumstances, circumstances such as his birthplace, his lineage, his method of execution... All those things were beyond Jesus' control. He couldn't have accidentally, he couldn't deliberately set that up for himself. It would be statistically impossible or an improbability. He could not set those things up. He wasn't, and, and Jesus wasn't the super duper intellect where he's playing chess and everybody else is playing checkers, you know? He's not doing that. It's not like me trying to play Tate, who's nine, in chess. 
right? He just beat me in chess. I was beat by a nine-year-old. You don't want to play with him. I won't tell you how many times he's beaten Grant. Grant's good at chess. And you know what he told me? Grandpa, you get a little, little lackadaisical with your queen. <laughs> because he knows I'm aggressive with my queen. I like to get her out there and create trouble and scare people. And that causes her to get taken out a lot of times. But, not to say. He wasn't this, this sharp intellect who knew how to put everything in place. There's a book that's called Science Speaks, and it was written by Peter Stoner and, and Robert Newman. And in this book, he discusses the, they discuss the statistical improbability of one man, whether accidentally or deliberately, fulfilling, they said, just eight of the prophecies that are in Scripture that Jesus fulfilled. Now, the Bible says, or, or scholars say, there's at least 300. Some break that down into 47 that are very, very clear. <coughs> but just eight. That's what they're talking about here. And they said the chance of this happening, they say, of one man fulfilling the eight prophecies that Jesus fulfilled is one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, I need some of my math people to go ahead and do the math on that, and you can tell us what the number is, right? But it's one in 10 to the 17th power. So this is what they said the odds would be like. Are you ready? See, my son, Lance, probably just did it in his head because he's a math guy like that, probably, right? You already know the number. And this is the illustration they give, and I want you to consider this. Have you all been to Texas? Most everybody of us have been to Texas. We've run around Texas a lot. I've been from tip to top, all over the east and west and all over Texas. Consider this. This is what they said. Suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars. We lay them on the face of Texas. That'd take a lot of silver dollars, but it's more than that. They'll cover all of the state, and not just cover all of the state with silver dollars, but two feet deep in silver dollars. That's one in 10 to the 17th power. That's what they're saying. Now let's go. Now, I want you to mark one of those silver dollars with an X. And then I want you to stir it in the whole mass over the whole state. You can put it anywhere you want. Austin, Houston, Corpus Christi, Dallas, you know, Tyler, Texas, wherever you want to put it. But that whole state is two feet deep in silver dollars. And you're putting one in with an X. Now, blindfold a man. Pick any man you want to. I don't know who we'd want to pick. Who would we want to pick? Let's just blindfold a man. Tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes. Let's get rid of somebody here today. You can travel as far as you want. But then you've got to tell him as you travel as far as you want, you've got to pick up one silver dollar. And you've got to say that it's the right one with the X on it. What chance would you have of giving and getting the right one? What chance? Two feet thick, whole state, from top to bottom, get one right. What would your chance be? And these men say that that's just the same chance that the prophets would have had 
in writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man. That would be the same odds. And they said it would be from any one man from the, that day to the present time using their own wisdom. How, it, it's an improbability. It's an impossibility. How, how could they do that? See, that's how nonsensical it is. This man Jesus lived. There's more proof that Jesus lived than there is for many uh, different political leaders we've had throughout our world that we just take for granted, lived and served and were leaders in the world. But for him to fulfill those eight prophecies, it would be that, those odds would be that astronomical. That astronomical. And there are many other Old Testament verses about Israel's Messiah that were fulfilled not only in the New Testament as well. And they give proof to his deity. Jesus said this in, in Matthew, or in Luke 24, 25 through 27, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? You see, you're foolish. Because the, the Jews at that time didn't believe that the Messiah would have to suffer. They thought he would come and reign supreme and deliver them from Roman oppression. That there, and would lead them to glory in the glorious kingdom. There would be no suffering. But Jesus said no. The scriptures have foretold as of old that the Messiah would have to suffer. Don't be so foolish. This is what the scriptures say. And he said, then Jesus took them, he said, after saying this, he took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he did this to a group of guys after he had risen from the dead. And then he said in John 5, 39, he had said this to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life. But scripture points to me. I am the one who these scriptures are speaking of and I give eternal life. The Jews of Thessalonica, they had to be persuaded to believe and, and, and to receive a suffering Messiah. They had to be persuaded to believe that he rose from the dead. They had to be persuaded to believe that this was true and was in scripture because they based their truth on tradition. They had to, be, they had to work and be, be persuaded to be ready to see and receive the truth because they weren't open to receive the truth. They were resistant to the truth. They were resistant to the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Just like maybe some of us are. He's come to give you life. He's come to give you life more abundantly. He's come to give me life more abundantly. But do we need to be persuaded of that? Or are we listening to believe? Well, thankfully, this wasn't the only place that Paul went to because he went to another town. And these things are written so that we might learn from them. And it says in verse 10, as soon as it was night, because what happened in Thessalonica, 
the Jews found out about the fact that he was getting disciples and people were coming to faith, and so they got jealous, they created trouble, and they ran him out of town. So he basically goes. And as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans, Jews, were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness. And they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed. As did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. There's a difference there. Again, in verse 11 through 12, it says, now these Jews were more noble. What does that word mean? And, and it says they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scripture daily to see if these things that Paul were preaching were true. And many of them therefore believed because they were more noble, because they sought the scriptures daily. See, in that day, the term mo mo noble, it really applied to people who were what? Open-minded, fair in mind and in attitude, and thoughtful. That, those need to go on your notes. They're open-minded, they're fair, and they're thoughtful. Wouldn't you want that to be said of you? That you're open-minded, you're fair, and you're thoughtful. They were different than the people in Thessalonica. The people in Thessalonica were not open-minded. They weren't fair, and they were barely thoughtful. And that's why they had a harder time believing. Luke, the, the author of the book of Acts, he saw the Bereans as these more noble people because they received this message, Paul's message, with all eagerness. They wanted to check it out. They wanted to know if it was true. And then they looked into the Old Testament to, as their final authority to see if, if it really was true. And so they examined the scriptures daily as he preached. You know, Luke points out something that's really kind of cool to us. In his praising of the Bereans, he's encouraging you and me to search the scripture daily and make that a pattern of our lives. Make that the pattern of our lives. If we're skeptical about the fact that Jesus truly is the Messiah who came to die in our place, that he, he is the one with words of eternal life, that he was God who was born in flesh and came to describe God to us, if we're skeptical about that, we don't need to run to the internet and find reasons not to believe, because there will always be reasons not to believe something. We don't need to find, you know, read other books that say why Christianity is not right. What we got to do is go to God and his word. And we got to see if indeed Jesus was this long-awaited Messiah that they were waiting for in the Old Testament. We've got to see. We have to look. We have to check out the scriptures daily. And we've got to let that be our foundation. See, the Bible can be understood not only by scholars and intellects, but ordinary people who eagerly and diligently depend on the Holy Spirit to read it and to understand it and to try to study it. And you don't have to study it very difficultly. You can understand it difficultly. I don't know if that's a word, but you can understand it. I came to faith in high school. So if a high school student can understand it, 
Most anybody can understand it, right? You can understand it. Children, some of my kids came to Christ earlier than that, and they could understand it. It is understandable. And these Bereans were more noble because they listened eagerly to believe. Here's the straight scoop to you and me. What I, kinda, what I believe the Holy Spirit did in putting these two towns together, one after the other, and Luke the author did in putting these two towns together, one after the other, is that they want us to understand some things that are true for us in our walk of faith. And today, even on Easter, the Holy Spirit of God is going to lead you and me into all truth about Jesus if we will examine the Word of God to believe rather than wait to be persuaded by it. I'm going to say that again. The Holy Spirit of God will lead us into all truth about Jesus as we eagerly examine the Word of God to believe rather than to wait to be persuaded by it. See, if you wait to be persuaded by it, you're not willing to believe. You and I have to be willing to believe. I don't know what it's going to take for you, maybe, to be willing to believe, or your loved ones who don't know Christ to be willing to believe. But we have to tell them, you have to be willing to believe. You have to, you and I have to, we must be willing to honestly consider the evidence that Jesus is God. We have to begin to spend time talking to people about our faith. Our neighbors, our loved ones, our sons, our daughters, our spouse, they're not going to come to Christ if we don't ever dialogue about it, if we don't ever get the scriptures open about it. They're not going to have any foundation. Why would they? We pray for them to come to Christ, but yet we don't get the scriptures out to give them an opportunity to believe or to be persuaded. We've got to get out there, and we've got to have these conversations. We've got to teach that way. We've got to disciple that way. We have to let them know that this Messiah was foretold in history and that he came and that he died in payment for sin in place of man's sin debt. He rose again from the dead and he proved that he had the power to do all that he had promised and that everyone who trusts in him and receives the gift of his death in their place will receive forgiveness and eternal life. We've got to talk about that. We've got to get people into the scriptures. You know, I've often told this, it was a Bible my brother got while in prison, um, and it was sitting on our bookshelf. He never read it. He was in prison a number of times and never read it. But I unzipped it as a little kid, I remember, opened it. And I began to read it, and I was young. I'm talking young elementary. But I remember seeing the picture of David and Goliath and reading that story. And then I began to read about Jesus some. And I could even understand it then, and I thought, is there really a God like this? Are there really people like this? Is this really true? And I began to question it. Is this a way to live life or not live life? And you've heard my testimony. I did this with a number of world religions because we grew up in a produce business and I didn't grow up in a Christian home. But I would question them. 
that helped in my spiritual formation. It helps us to consider what other, you know, why we believe and what we're going to believe. And so as I talk to Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, and I talk to pagans, uh, which I ran with, and I talked with people of, uh, of, of different faiths and world religions, I began to go, hold on a second, eh, this doesn't add up, this doesn't add up, this doesn't add up, this adds up, this doesn't add up. And I kept coming back to Jesus. I kept coming back to his word. Now, you know, it took me a long time to finally get there and put it all together. And in part, because I wasn't doing it in conversation with other people very well. I would talk about these other world religions with them, but I wouldn't talk about anybody else about Jesus. And so I was having a hard time putting it all together until that time it all came together. But I'm here to tell you, it wasn't until I was willing to believe that God revealed himself to me. Because I said, if you're really God, I'll put my faith in you. But you have to make my life brand new and make me brand new because I stink and it stinks. And uh, if, and if it's, I'm not going to be brand new, I'm not coming. And I'm not going to follow you. And I remember hearing the Lord say, I will. And then I had to choose to trust. Will I trust? Will I not trust? And there's all sorts of voices out there saying, don't trust. Don't trust. Don't trust. Don't trust. Vince and I were talking about this, right? You're going to get baptized, and all of a sudden you have all these voices from your past coming up, telling you, don't do it, chuck it all, run away, go do what you used to do in, in your life of sin. Well, you get that. You get that. But if you're willing to believe, if you're willing to believe, if you're willing to admit your own bias, your own struggle, if you're willing, Jesus is going to give you the evidence you need. And it's going to be founded on the word of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one. His Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth about Jesus as we openly and honestly and eagerly examine the word of God to believe rather than waiting to be persuaded by it. Do not wait to be persuaded. I heard that there was a golfer out in the, in the Master's who his father said to him before he died, he says, don't wait to do something. Don't wait to do something big. Don't wait. And he's shooting what? I think he was seven under, uh, under par. So he's doing pretty well in the Masters. And he's an amateur. He said, don't wait to do something. I want to say that to you and to me. Don't wait. Don't have to be persuaded, but be open to believe. Now here's the deal, though, as we close. This gospel, if you read these stories, there was trouble every time he shared the gospel. It, it moved him to a new city. It, it happens every time. And there were times, and you know that Paul, within the book of Acts here, how many times was he in prison? How many times has, well, he'd been beaten. He got stoned, and then he went back to the same city that he got stoned in to try to share the gospel with them again. That time he'd get, he'd get stoned, but he had trouble. The gospel does not advance without cost. None of us get to faith without cost. There's always a cost. The very message of the gospel is a message about Jesus Christ, God's only son, taking on human flesh, suffering and dying so they might win victory for us over sin. And that he might win victory for us over death by rising from the dead. And it was all because he sacrificed his blood and his life. 
And because of that, we have eternal life in his name. So if salvation in Jesus came at such a great cost, should we think that proclaiming it won't cost us too? It will cost us. So church, I'm coming to you this morning saying, don't be afraid of the cost. It's all worth it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews 12 tells us, scorning his shame, and he has sat down victoriously at the right hand of the Father. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. amen. And he is marching us toward a day when he will return and fulfill his mission on earth. And we will be with the Lord forever on that day. That day is coming. Now we are in the day of grace. We are in the time where we can share. We are in the time where we can pray for. But the clock is ticking. That time is shorter than it was last Easter. We're, we're one more Easter closer. I don't know when it will end. I don't know when it will come for you. Whether you'll die and go to heaven or whether you'll, you'll live until Jesus returns. But don't fear the cost. There's great reward. There's life and life more abundantly. You know, one of the things I love about Jesus is before I didn't know the Lord, I was scared. You would never see it on me because I hid it. But I was scared. And I fought a lot because I was scared. Verbally and physically and every way else. Because I was totally scared. And when I came to Jesus, that fear was taken away. And it was replaced with peace and grace and health. I had confident, enduring peace, confident, enduring joy that I never had before separate from Christ. The fear was gone. I praised him because of that. I'm thankful because of that. But now I've got to walk with him. You've got to walk with him. And it will cost us to be witnesses for him. But don't fear the cost. It's well worth it. Because the Lord has promised eternal life and abundant life here. Amen? And he gives abundant life to Paul time and time again. And he takes care of him time and time again. And he'll do the same for you and me as well. So this Easter may not be the Easter message you're normally used to. But it's a call to say, let's not listen to be persuaded. Let's listen to belief. Let's step out in belief. Let's count the cost, but not just count it. Let's pay the cost. And let's be witnesses for Christ. And let's, see, let's bring people to Jesus. And let's stay in the scripture daily that we might know what we, the message we have and we might be able to give others evidence for why they should believe too. Amen? I want you to stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this Easter. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's example to us. God, thank you for the grace that you've given us this Easter. Thank you for your love and your mercy that continues. Thank you for the salvation we stand in because of what you accomplished on the cross. Thank you that the same power that raised you from the dead is there available to us to give power to our mortal lives even now. That we will have tribulation and trial in our lives. We are not free from those things. 
but we have a power that can overcome. We will not be overcome by evil, but we will overcome evil with good. We will not become overcome by darkness, but we'll overcome darkness with good. And we will be victorious in the battle. Even though we might lose a battle here and there, we will win the war. And so God, keep us faithful and mindful of those things. Help us, God, to be light while we still have time in our families, in our communities, in our church. So bless us, Lord God. And keep us in your word, Lord, that we would be able to give people reasons to believe. Uh, and persuade some and help others who are yearning and eager to believe until you return. So Father, bless us this Easter, we pray. And God, as a church, we want to stand together this morning and pray specifically for Elsie Kalstrom and for the Kalstrom family. We ask you, Lord God, to bless her with healing, to lift her up and restore her, to show her, God, how much you love her and, uh, and how much her family loves her. And that um, you would show them, too, Lord, that on this Easter. So, Father, we, we seek you for that blessing. We seek you for that healing. We seek you for the revelation of your spirit uh, of change to occur. Uh, in their family and in Elsie's life. We ask this in Jesus' name. And we all said together, Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Lord bless you. Have a